0: happiness. Everybody wants it. Few ever find it. True happiness, the happiness that God gives to his children is the result of our holiness. Never ever forget that. To be holy is to be happy. To be holy is to be happy. That is the specific message of the opening stanza of Psalm 119. Now, as many of you probably already know, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, as well as being the longest chapter in the Scriptures. It's 176 verses. Besides its length, what makes this psalm unique is the fact that with just very few exceptions, maybe three verses or so, every verse in some way makes reference to the Word of God. Now, as we think that through, that means that this psalm is really all about God because God speaks to us through his word. God reveals himself to us through his word. So therefore, to know the word of God is to know God. So as we work our way through this psalm, we want to keep that in mind. We're not necessarily studying this passage of scripture we're studying God we're seeing how we can best relate to God and one of the ways that we relate to God perhaps the major way that we relate to God is through his word now as we work our way through this opening stanza you can't help but notice that the psalmist begins with a very broad appeal if you will and then as he works his way down through the psalm, his focus becomes very narrow. You could almost think of it in terms of a funnel where it's very wide up top and very narrow at the bottom. And he begins by making two statements of blessing that apply to everyone. And here, here, here it is in a broad sense. If you want to be happy, you have to live that's not strong enough. If you want to be happy, you must live according to God's word. Then after making these statements, that really can be broadly applied, he then begins to change his focus and he zeroes in on himself and he begins to make direct application of what he writes to himself. And... I'm sure that you will easily recognize this progression as we work our way through this first passage. So he begins by making two statements of facts, or if you like, he begins by stating two parallel principles. Let's look at verses one and two again. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Now, those words probably sound pretty familiar to us because if you go back to the opening of the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 1, what do we read? Well, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. But you know, these, this isn't the only time when we hear words like this or phrases like this. Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount, by using the same words, he issues a series of statements which are known as the Beatitudes. And beginning in verse 4 and running all the way down through verse 11, each verse begins with blessed are. So the psalmist here in Psalm 119, he begins with two of his own Beatitudes. He, like Jesus, says blessed are. Now, unfortunately, this word blessed or "bless" is used... So frequently today that perhaps we've lost its real significance. We don't understand its meaning. And even those who have it said to them or say it, they don't really think much about it. They don't really think about what it really means. And even in our culture as uh, secular as it is becoming, it's not unusual, particularly in the Bible Belt, for someone to tell you to have a blessed day. Or they find out that something good has recently happened to you, and they say, well, you certainly have been blessed. Even unbelievers, I can think of one person in particular that my wife probably has in mind right now. She will always tell you, have a blessed day. And uh, I don't know where she thinks that blessing is going to come from, because certainly not from her, because the Spirit of God is not in her, I don't think, but anyway. If you look up the meaning of the word blessed, you discover that it has to do with happiness. Now, I know... I know that seems somewhat shallow to us. But there is a sense that God does want his children to be happy. But this word of blessed, yes, it means happiness, but it also carries the sense of being highly favored by God. What did the angel say to Mary? Described her as what? The Favor? favored one So to be blessed in this context is to experience the favor of God Well what does God highly favor his children with Well as the word is used here in context it refers to the joy that comes from our obedience Think of it in terms of as obedience being its own reward now, we don't think of obedience in those terms, do we? Particularly if you're raising children, we kind of bribe them to get them to obey. If you obey daddy, uh, you'll get a cookie, right? Or if you leave grandpa alone, I'll buy you a book, you know. So we, we kind of bribe them to the, 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 their, their obedience isn't the reward, the rewards are the cookie or the book or whatever we're going to do for them. What the psalmist is trying to get us to see here is that obedience is its own reward. There is a joy, a happiness, if you will, that comes when you and I are obedient to the word of God. So it's a joy, it's a happiness that is independent of our circumstances. In other words, This joy, this happiness, is not dependent upon what we have or what our life is like at any given moment. It's a joy that the world, frankly, can never provide us with. And equally true, it's a joy that the world can never take away from us. So straight away, the psalmist has our attention. Why? Because everybody wants to be happy, correct? Now, I know we meet a lot of unhappy people in the world, But I dare say even the unhappy ones would like to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. The problem for many is that they continue to seek happiness in all the wrong places. They think that if they have X, Y, or Z, then they will be happy. They think if every relationship in their life is right, then they can be happy. They seek to be happy in their circumstances, but they find out they are disappointed time and time and time again. But the psalmist, right off the bat, he doesn't leave any wiggle room for us as Christians. He doesn't leave any doubt that you as a Christian can experience the happiness, the joy that God has made available to each one of his children. So right away, one of the questions we need to be asking ourselves is, can I honestly say that I'm experiencing this kind of joy? Am I experiencing this kind of happiness? And then we should ask ourselves, well, how can I experience this kind of happiness? How can I experience this blessedness? Well, our happiness is a direct function of our holiness. Now, isn't that exactly opposite of what the world would have us to believe? Do what you want. Make yourself happy. If it feels right, do it. Correct? The Bible says, no, no, no. That's completely opposite. If you want to be happy, you must be holy. The psalmist says, blessed or happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now, we might get a little discouraged at that word blameless. If we think that blameless means perfect, I mean, is the psalmist lifting our spirits up only to dash them right away? No, thankfully that's not what blameless means. To be blameless is to be a person of integrity. And perhaps we're most familiar with this concept From the life of Job. Remember what the Bible says about Job? Job was described as being blameless before God. The book of Job opens with these words There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, how do we know that Job was a man of integrity? Well, we know that Job was a man of integrity by the suggestion of Satan that Job was only a good man, that he only had his integrity. Because he had lived a somewhat charmed life. He had everything that he needed. And if he would uh, lose all of that stuff, if some uh, adversity would come into his life, then his true colors would really come out. And so what did Satan ask? He said, let me me afflict Job. And God gave him permission to afflict Job. And yet we learn in the same chapter, chapter 1 of Job, that Job didn't sin. In fact, chapter 1, verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So therefore, let's be encouraged that to be blameless is not the same as being perfect. To be blameless doesn't mean that we never sin. To be blameless is to live a life of integrity. So let's look at it again. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So the psalmist says, happy are those whose lives are characterized by integrity. Say, what's it mean to live with integrity? It simply means that there is harmony in what you say you believe and the way that you live. Is the opposite of being a hypocrite. To live a life of integrity is when your lifestyle matches your profession of what you say that you believe. You know, we live in a world where integrity, frankly, is in short supply. Do we have people out there espousing views and beliefs that they don't even live by? Sure, we do. There's a lack of integrity. So to live with integrity, I want to emphasize this. This is what it means to be blameless. is to live in a manner that is consistent with what you say that you believe. So then what's this guiding principle that the blameless man or woman walks by? Well, what's he say? They walk in the law of the Lord. Now, most of us, again, know that this word walk is used in the scriptures as a word picture of the way that we live, of our lifestyle. Therefore, the blameless man or woman, uh, they live according, they, their life is governed by the law of God. In other words, they don't live by their own opinion or wisdom. Now, you say, yeah, I agree with that. Well, you know what? Examine some of your beliefs to see if that's really true. Now, the reason I say that is because we are more conformed to this world's way of thinking than we might at first believe. So, therefore, we have to regularly check on ourselves to make sure that our thinking is in line with the Word of God. The one who lives by the law of God, they don't live by their own opinion or their own wisdom, they don't let their higher education lead to lower living. Correct? They're not a law unto themselves. The media, whatever is said on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or out of stock or whatever it is, they don't live by that. That's not what forms their opinion. That's not how they govern their life. They live by the law of God. Now, notice he says that they walk. They don't run. They don't sprint. They walk. Say, what's the point? The point is they take it one step at a time, one day at a time. They consistently live according to the word of God. They have it as their goal that each step they take will be governed by, will be directed by God's word. Therefore, they think about the decisions they make and the actions they take. Now, what's it mean by, well, let me go to the second beatitude first. Look at verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Now, what this means is, my translation, happy are those who keep, which means they conform their actions, they conduct themselves according to God's testimonies. In reality, it's, it's saying the same thing in just a little different way. Their lifestyle is controlled by the word of God. So you see the pattern here? If you want to be happy, you have to be holy. And to be holy, therefore, your life has to conform to the Word of God. Not your own ideas, not your own opinions, not even what some other preacher says. If it's not in Scripture, throw it out, live according to Scripture. So right away, we have two descriptive terms of the Word of God that the psalmist gives to us. First, he refers to the Scriptures as the law. Now, I'm going to frequently, as we work through the psalm, refer to... Some commentary notes by Derek Kinder, and he uh, is, is very good at helping us understand what these different synonyms for the law is. So let me read you the first one. He's talking here about the law. He says, This is the chief term of all and is heard most often in reference to this psalm. Its parent verb means teach or direct, therefore, coming from God. It means both law and revelation. It can be use of a single command or of a whole body of law, especially the Pentateuch, or again of Scripture as a whole. Now, from our vantage point, that's what it means. He's not telling us here just to live by the, the, the five books of the law. He's telling us that the law refers to the entirety of Scripture. And he, he closes by saying it reminds us that Revelation is not simply for interest, but for Obedience. In other words, why did God reveal these truths? Why did God put these things in writing? So that we would obey them. They are not here for a casual reading. They are not here for us to critique. They are really not here for us to debate. They are here for us to obey. Next, the psalmist refers to God's word, uh, to the scriptures, as God's testimonies. Again, I'll reference Derek. Work, we're on first name basis. Now I've read him so much. Amen. Uh, He said, Israel was told to place the book of the law beside the Ark of the Covenant, that it may be therefore a witness against you. The outspokenness of Scripture with its high standards and frank warnings is implied in this expression, but so too is its dependability. As the word of the faithful and true witness, therefore thy testimonies are my delight. So here's my translation: Happy are those who strive to live up to the high standards and the frank warnings of the scriptures which will never let you down nor will they lead you astray. But notice the psalmist goes on to say, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. The obedience that brings the happiness of God is an obedience of the heart. Blessed are those who seek God with their whole heart. We obey God because we love God. We are single-minded. We are single-hearted, if you will, in our devotion to God. The true believer, the true Christian is grieved when they sin against God. Therefore, the blessedness that the psalmist refers to is, no, is not experienced, cannot be experienced by those who seek to obey God out of duty or legalism. Put that down, write it down, circle it. If you are simply obeying out of duty, you're not going to experience this kind of happiness that is available to you. Certainly, if you're doing it out of a legalistic mindset, your legalists are never happy people. By definition, they can't be happy people. Because they're either upset with themselves because they can't live up to their own standards or they're mad at you because you're not living up to their standards. So we're not talking about a a legalistic obedience. God does not want a legalistic obedience. He wants an obedience of the heart. Let me say it again. The obedience of duty and legalistic obedience will suck the joy right out of it. And the obedience that God desires is not a begrudging obedience where you resent having to do what God asks you to do, right? Again, if you've, if you've raised a child, you, you know this, this is how it works sometimes. Uh, they'll do it, but they do it very begrudgingly. They don't really want to do it. They don't find any joy in doing it, but I just I'll just I'll do it, make it, make the old man happy. you know That's not the kind of obedience that God wants. So the blessedness that the psalmist refers to here will not be experienced by those whose whole heart is not fixed on seeking God. So that raises another question. How do we know if we are seeking God with our whole heart? Well, I think the text gives us some clues. Those who seek God with their whole heart are those who do no wrong but walk in his ways. Now, again, the psalmist is not referring to perfect people. That's not what he's saying here. He's referring to people whose lifestyle is characterized by obedience. Again, go back to that image of walking. Just day after day, one step after another, they walk according to God's word. They follow the Lord's way. And guess what? When they get off of the Lord's way, they get back on as quickly as they can. In other words, they repent of their sin and they strive to be obedient again. So, blameless people consider each In every action, response, and attitude in relation to God's Word. Can I say that again? Blameless people consider each and every action, response, and attitude in relation to God's Word. Please think that through because that removes a lot of our excuses. Such as, well, this is just the way that God made me. No, God didn't make you a jerk. I'm pretty sure He didn't make you a jerk. He didn't make you a law unto yourself, He didn't do that. So we need to consider all of our actions. How do we respond to situations? How do we respond to other people? What is our attitude towards other people? What is our attitude towards ourselves? What is our attitude towards God? And we need to bring all of that under the authority of Scripture. And if it doesn't line up with what the Scriptures say, then we need to make the change. Okay. So in verses 1 through 3, he's been speaking very broadly to anyone who would read his words, but now as he comes to chapter 4, verse 4, excuse me, he speaks directly to God. Look at verse four. Have, you have commanded, he's speaking to God, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. So the psalmist here is reminding himself as well as you and I of the authority of God's word. To obey God's word is to obey God. Can I say that again? To obey God's word is to obey God. All right? So I would, I would say this to people who say, I don't need the church. I can obey God. I can please God outside of going to the church. You cannot. Because the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Okay? Now, how are we to obey God? What's it say? Diligently. Which means we are to be what? What? Well, you know, I I really misunderstood this word until I started studying it. You know, diligent, to be diligent to me was, you know, you you work hard at something, you focus on it, you just keep at it. Well, there's some truth to that. But in this context, it means that we are quick to obey. It means that we make, literally, we make haste to obey. This is not something that you put on your to-do list. And as you work your way down, The item number 29, okay, I'll do that now, God. No. I think I hear some of my kids say to their kids, uh, obey first time every time. Right? That's true. First time every time right now is the time. Don't put it off. Don't put it on your to-do list. Okay? So we are to obey God diligently. And what are we to obey? Well, again, we have a third term the psalmist uses to describe the scriptures. He describes them here as God's precepts, which means this is a word drawn from the realm of an officer or overseer, a man who is responsible to look closely into a situation and take action. So the word points to the particular instructions of the Lord as of one who cares about detail. So God is concerned about our personal conduct even in the smallest of details. There's no command of God which is so small that we can safely ignore it. You know, there's no little commands of God. It's like people say, oh, I I just told a white lie. I'm I'm not even sure what that means. No, you, you violated a commandment. Thou shalt not what? Why? Don't bear false witness. Don't do that. Be concerned about the the small things. The Bible warns us that it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. Which means little sins left unchecked will lead to big problems. Can I say that again? Little sins left unchecked Will lead to big problems. That's why we are to be quick to obey. A sinful thought left unchecked and not repented of will continue to grow until one day it gives birth to sinful actions that hold the potential of not only ruining your own life, but the lives of others. Therefore, there are no small sins. You know, we look at the outside world and we see them uh, cheating in their relationships, you know, or they're doing this, or they're doing that. And we say, boy, you know, we're, uh, we're glad we're not like them, but yet we gossip all the time. and We've got a sharp tongue all the time. We've got a lousy attitude all the time. And we think, well, you know, what's the big deal? It's a small sin that will grow into something much larger. All the commands of God are to be obeyed regardless of their size if we are to experience this life of blessedness, this happiness, this joy of obedience. But the psalmist recognizes he has a problem. Look at verse 5. He knows that he personally struggles to obey. He says, oh, this is more than an exclamation. This is a lament. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. He recognizes that in and of himself, he can't do this. This is what I want to do, but I know that I can't do it. So he has this lament, oh, that my ways may be steadfast. I think there's two things going on in his heart. First, he openly acknowledges his struggle to obey. He openly admits to the Lord that his obedience is not what he would like it to be. He openly admits that his consistency is not what he wants it to be. He admits, like the Apostle Paul, that, hey, there are things that I want to do, but I just can't seem to do it, and there are things that I don't want to do, and I end up doing them all the time. That's what he's saying here. This is his lament, and every genuine Christian who understands themselves will stand right beside him and Paul and say, me too. I struggle in the same way. Well, second, he pleads with God for help. God, you know my heart. God, you know what I want to do. You know what I want to be. You know what my ongoing struggle is. Please help me. He pleads with God to help him to be steadfast in keeping God's statutes. Say, what's it mean to be steadfast? Well, there's a sense where to be steadfast is to be determined. Determined. The psalmist pleads with God to help strengthen his determination to walk in God's ways, to be blameless to live a life of integrity. See, the psalmist took sin seriously. The psalmist understood the power of sin. He understood the cunning nature of sin. He understood the deceitfulness of sin. He understood the powerful draw of the pleasure of sin, and he pleads with God to help him. When I first began to study Psalm 119, one of the first notes that I wrote down was that this is a psalm of self-examination. The psalm repeatedly issues calls, maybe implied, but issues these calls for us to examine ourselves. To help us understand exactly what our relationship is to God and His Word. To examine ourselves to see if we are taking the power of sin seriously. And right here we have one of these self examination points. Do you recognize the power of sin? Are you diligent and steadfast in your obedience? Do you make haste to obey? Do you recognize that even the smallest of God's commands are to be obeyed without delay? Do you recognize that apart from God's help through His Holy Spirit that you are powerless to obey His commands? Do you recognize that apart from the Holy Spirit you will not be blameless and therefore you will not experience the happiness that comes from holiness? And if you're not experiencing God's happiness and God's joy, maybe you need to dig deep to see if you've let in that little fox that's spoiling the vine you may think it's just a little thing now only to discover later on uh, that it's a grotesque monster that's keeping you from experiencing God's best. Well, what are the results of keeping God's statutes? One, well, verse 6, he says that he will not be put to shame. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. So once again, he highlights the benefits or the blessings of obedience. When he obeys all of God's commandments, Listen carefully, listen carefully, listen carefully. When he obeys all of God's commandments, he eliminates the possibility of him ever having to experience shame or to be ashamed of his sinful actions. Now, of course, today, shame is considered to be old-fashioned. Shame is a construct of the Puritans that has no uh, place in our modern world. So, the psychologists and the psychiatrists of the world do their best to convince us that we should not feel shame. There is no such thing as shame. But we need to ask ourselves why do we feel shame? If it's a a construct of the human imagination, why do we feel shame? Because we are ashamed. Because we are ashamed of our actions. God has created us with this whole range of emotions for our good, and one of those emotions is shame. When we feel shame, we know that something is wrong. We know that we have done something wrong. We have violated God's will. We have violated God's law. And why do so many seek to either deny the existence, existence of shame or they seek to get relief from their shame, they, they try to explain it away. You know why this goes on? Because they know the reason that they are feeling shame is because they have violated God's law. They have violated God's standard. Now, they may, may not be able to quote to you the Ten Commandments, but God has given them a moral compass, and they know they violated it. That's why they feel shame. Okay. Shame is powerful. Spurgeon wrote in his Treasury of David concerning the words of the psalmist, he said, he, referring to the psalmist, he had known shame, and here he rejoices in the prospect of being freed from it. Sin brings shame, and when sin is gone, the reason for being ashamed is banished. What a deliverance this is, for to some men, now listen to this, for to some men, death is preferable to shame. Let me give you an example. It's been three or four years ago now. Our next door neighbor, the news was about to break that he had been molesting his stepdaughter for years. And when it became was about to become public knowledge, he took a high-powered rifle, drove a, just a few blocks from our home, and took his life. Why? He would rather die than deal with the shame. Don't think that shame is a light thing. If we feel shame... Let's examine why we're feeling that shame and let's deal with it. That's how powerful shame is. Shame, shame is intended to help the sinner recognize that something is wrong and lead them to repentance. Okay? And the way to avoid this shame is by fixing our eyes on God's Word. Now, an aspect of fixing our eyes on God's Word certainly means reading it but I' firmly convinced it means memorizing it as well as meditating on it. If your eyes are fixed on something, they're what? They're right there. they're focused in. So let me make a little suggestion to you. As we begin our study of Psalm 119, let me encourage you to each and every day, five days a week I'll give you a weekend off, amen each and every day to take the time to either read or listen to the psalm. Okay, now I've done this several times so I know if, if you uh, get uh, I think the guy's name reads the ESB now is David Heath Cochran. If you get his recording it's just about 16 minutes. Quarter of an hour. And depending upon your reading speed if you read silently you can probably read it in about the same amount of time. So let me encourage you to listen to it over and over and over again. But how about this? Why don't you do more than just listen to it? Why don't you try and memorize it? You say, oh, it's 176 verses. I'll never make it. It's eight verses a week. Right? It's eight verses a week. Now, I'm not going to have you come in. I'm going to come in next Sunday and say, uh, Chris, uh, uh, you give us the verses 1 through 8. And uh, Don, you do 9 through 16. <laughs> no. That's my radio voice, by the way. You like that? <laughs> no, but what are you doing? You're hiding God's word in your heart and you have it there at all times, whenever you need it. You know, I'm a, I'm a big chicken. And when I go to the doctor, I would rather do, I would just about take, rather take a beating than go to the doctor. And so I've been going to see this eye specialist and it's, it's, I don't like it at all. And so I, you know, they, they lay you back in this chair before they torture you. And, uh, So I'm always I'm always thinking of Scripture. I'm always praying. You know why? Because it really does encourage me. It really does strengthen me. I don't I don't whip out my pocket New Testament and say, uh, I know I can't see you at the moment, but anyway, you know, no, I've got I've got something memorized. You know, this may sound weird, but that memorizing that Scripture is like a, a baby sucking on a pacifier. Man, it just chills me out scripture. That's how it brings comfort. That's how it brings strength. That's how it brings encouragement. So I would challenge you to do that. Okay. Now what's the result of not experiencing the shame of sin? That's praise. Look at verse seven. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I love this. I love this by Charles Spurgeon. As only he can say it, he says this, from prayer to praise is never a long or a difficult journey. Be sure that he who prays for holiness will one day praise for happiness. Isn't that great? And why shouldn't the psalmist praise God? He has escaped the shame of sin. He is experiencing the joy that God gives to those who live blameless lives. But I want you to notice his praise isn't an empty, empty mindless praise. He praises God with an upright heart. And how did he get this upright heart? Well, he was taught by God. He learned God's righteous rules, which leads me to say, be a lifelong learner or student of the scriptures. You can never exhaust them. There's always something to learn. Adopt the attitude of the Apostle Paul who made it his life's ambition to know Christ. And he was willing to give up everything and suffer anything in order to know Christ. Study the scriptures for yourself. Let the Holy Spirit be your teacher. He's the best teacher you will ever have. Well, just how serious is the psalmist about all of this? Well, notice his professed determination, verse 8 I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Here is a man who is determined to live a life of integrity. His desire to experience the blessedness of a blameless life, and so. He has such a strong desire, he publicly proclaims, I will keep your statutes. It's not I might or I hope so. I will. This is what I'm going to do. I'm making a firm commitment. I am determined that I am going to do this. Now, I think this this is another self examination point. How determined are you to obey? In the face of temptation, how determined are you to obey? how committed to obedience are you? What does it take for you to run up the white flag of surrender in the face of temptation? What we need to be is like Jacob who wrestled all night in order to what? To gain the victory. And we should have such a commitment to obedience, such a determination to obedience that we are willing to wrestle like Jacob with dogged determination until we gain the victory over the temptation. Now, it would be so easy to read these verses and to think to ourselves that what the psalmist is describing is impossible. And the reason we think it's impossible is because we know ourselves, we know our struggles. So you think to yourself, well, it all sounds great, but frankly, I feel like he's playing a cruel joke on me. That he's holding something up to me only to find that it's going to be snatched away because you know you lack the ability to do these things. Well, guess what? The psalmist admits that he's not, even himself, he's not capable of doing these things. He's not capable of doing what he desires to do, what he is determined to do. So what does he do? First, he plants his flag, if you will. I will keep your statutes. But just as quickly, he cries out to God, do not utterly forsake me. So what's he doing here? He's crying out to God for help. This is what I want to be. This is what I want to do, but I know that in and of myself, it'll never happen. Therefore, God, help me. Don't forsake me in this. The good news is we don't have to feel defeated before we even begin. Why? Because God, when God saved us through our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell us, correct? When God saved us, we became a part of the new covenant, which we celebrated this morning in our observance of the Lord's Supper. And part of the new covenant contains this wonderful promise by God that we find in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to it. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. Now notice this. I. I will put my laws on their hearts, and I, I'm putting in the I here, Write them, I will write them on their minds. See, in our salvation, we undergo a complete and thorough, comprehensive transformation. And our hearts are included as part of that transformation. And as our hearts are transformed, that means that we now have a willingness, a desire to love God and to obey God. And this is incredibly good news because this means that God has placed within each one of his redeemed children a desire to obey him and his word. Say, why is that incredibly good news? Because you know as well as I do, desires have to battle. Desires have to battle. That's what gives us the impetus, the motivation to stick with it, to keep going. I've got this God-given desire. This is not my desire. This is a desire that God has put within me. He's written it on my heart. He's given me this desire to obey his law. So when the psalmist cries out, do not utterly forsake me, he's saying, God, I can't do this without your help. He's saying, God, if you don't help me, I'll never achieve the state of blessedness that is available to all your children. So he closes this opening stanza with a promise of determination and a plea of dependence. That's what you and I need to do. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And you know what? That's a plea, that's a prayer that God will always answer. Don't we have a promise that he will never leave us or forsake us? See. So the closing question this morning is, are you a part of the new covenant that was ratified by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And In short, have you been born again?